The height of faith is to look around you and see the world and send death and the devil raging and believe that God is still good, just, and, and true. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today as always with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing? Doing great, Nick. Matt, I saw that you invited me to like Church of the Good Shepherd on Facebook. How dare you? Are you ah. trying to assist the soft totalitarian state to track and influence my every thought? And on a related note, can you tell I'm reading Rod Dreher's Live Not By Lies? Yes, I can. <laughs> That's right. Someone hacked into our Facebook page for Good Shepherd. And so we, we had like a bunch of followers and we were live streaming from that page. It was really good. And then someone hacked it. So we've had to rebuild it from scratch so you're one of the you're one of the founding members of the new okay <laughs> one of the new founders <laughs> that's that like is going to totally screw up your algorithm nick yeah. for, uh, all your other likes are like you know totally yeah. dissimilar i'm sure you know basketball teams well, and things like that truth be told i didn't like it nor have i liked anything so <laughs> <laughs> facebook curmudgeon that's right <laughs> grr that's right so we thought we'd start another informal series here on Stand Firm Podcast. This episode will be our first entry in a series of frequently asked questions. These are not necessarily mailbag questions. We'll still do our occasional mailbag episodes, so keep those questions coming. These questions could come from anywhere. This one actually comes from a parishioner of mine here in Louisville, a student. We had a nice long conversation about this question, but she didn't seem totally satisfied with my answer. So I thought I'd bring it up here in the vanishingly small hopes that one of you gentlemen will have something more helpful to say than I did. So here's our first stand firm frequently asked question. If God doesn't save everyone, does that mean he doesn't love everyone? Um, I, I would want to start answering that question by making a distinction between the types of, of love we're talking about here. Um, because, because, you know, John 1, uh, 12 and 13, or, or 11 and 12, um, indicates that not everyone is a child of God related to him as, as son and daughter, um, but only those to whom he gives new birth. And so there's, there's, a, there's a, a group of people, those whom he's given to his son, that he has called out from the world and established a, a unique and special relationship with those people that he, doesn't have, that he does not have with anyone else. So he doesn't, well, whatever else we say, and I think we're gonna say a lot more, but whatever else we say, we have to say that at least for the elect, there's a kind of love that he doesn't have for others. Now, does that mean he doesn't love others? And that's, I guess, you know, I'll, I'll pass that over to JD and see if he wants to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's a tough question, not because of uh, what we have to say about it, but because the fact of the matter, as you laid out, is that, you know, there is very clear in Scripture a chosen people, um, the elect, the predestined, as it were, and the question then remains, what happens to those who aren't? And this is a vexing question. You know, this is not something that uh, we, that, that is taken lightly, um, nor do we not have even biblical warrant for it. I mean, if you read Romans 9, 10, 11, you know, you see Paul uh, looking right there. You know, he's hearkening back to Isaiah, you know, this imagery of the potter in Isaiah, and he's using this this rather what Luther calls the, the terrible question, you know, can God make 
uh, vessels that are, you know, disfigured, uh, dishonorable, simply to magnify the beauty of the ones that he loves. And the answer, the implication, of course, is, is yes, God can do whatever he wants. That's what gods do. You know, if, if God can't do whatever he wants, you should find the other one who <laughs> is God. So, you know, in the history of theology, there's the wrestling with this. I always talk about it's come down to sort of two different ways. You know, one hand people, and, and neither one are scriptural. You know, one says we know exactly, not only does he save specific people, we know exactly who those people are and what they look like, and you're not one of them. And, you know, and so, or, or if you, if you don't look like me, then you're not one of them. And that takes a variety of forms. And you still hear this, um, uh, you can hear a variation of that um, up to this day, of course. But then, you know, the more in our milieu, as it were, particularly in the West, uh, more often you'll hear someone say something along the lines of, well, you know, eventually he'll save everyone, you know, some sort of sort of soft, if not explicit universalism, which of course has the, uh, the unfortunate side effect of eliminating the need for evangelism, um, you know, in proclamation. because or Jesus God, at all. That's right. And so, you know, sort of a soft Jesus-flavored Unitarianism is what that goes into. And I've wrestled with this. We've talked about this before, but, you know, I think any the Christian needs to wrestle with this because fundamentally the question of, of or the, the proclamation of the Bible is, is uh, that God is love. You know, we know this. This is, and, but we know how He is love, and this is love. Not that God loved us, but laid His, you know, but sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, and that our our lack of appreciation for the dramatic and catastrophic consequences of sin uh, with respect to the human uh, person and even the world uh, really uh, is shows its 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 cards when we start asking. Is God love, even though it doesn't save everyone? Because the question is simply, uh, because God is love, he saves anyone. You know, I mean, or not the question, I mean the statement. Like, he, we know that he's love because out of sinful humanity, he has deigned to save some. Um, which, of course, as a perfect God of love and justice, um, he wouldn't... Um, he wouldn't have to do it all, you know? And so I think that's, again, these are insufficient answers as they trust God fundamentally. Well, this is going to be one of the main places that you're going to jump ship as it were. And I think it's, that's, I think that makes sense because this is one of the greatest places where uh, faith is, is uplifted. And we say, you know, Lord, not my will, not my idea of what's right or wrong, but yours. And I trust that as you promised through John in Revelation, that when we get to heaven, that, that there will be no tears, to wipe away every tear from our eyes, and there will be a greater understanding than we could even possibly imagine now. I had that verse written down in my notes here, First uh, John 4.10, if and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the image that I have in my head of how this works visually, you all can poke holes in this if you need to, is sort of the image of an hourglass, which is wide at the top, wide underneath, and very narrow in the center. And I'm envisioning Jesus's baptism in the Jordan when he comes up out of the water and the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descends upon him and the voice says, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And so there's a sense for me in which the top of that hourglass, Almighty God, is love, but his love is pointed down to the world exclusively through this one point, Jesus Christ. And so while the rest of the world on the bottom of the hourglass certainly has access to that love, 
because God is love, the access to it is only through that one point, Jesus Christ, the Savior. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. I mean, you, there's, okay, so I, I, I want to go back to the idea of also drawing distinctions between what kind of loves we're talking about, because, you know, in uh, Matthew chapter uh, five or six, Jesus says, you know, God, God is good to the just and the unjust. He pours out rain and snow and sun. He gives the good things of life, like marriage and love and food and shelter and I mean, everything that everything that a human being gets, and here I'm speaking of non-believers and believers together. Everything is a is a is a gift of grace and love. So I I, I think we can say that God at least has a has a form of agape that He gives to the non-believer in the sense that He He blesses them with the blessings of creation. He made them. He they you know in Acts 17, for uh, Paul is speaking about not believers but non-believers, talking about Gentiles, and he says, well, God put everyone where they are in the world so they might seek after him and find him. That's, a, that's an expression of love. He sends the gospel out to the world. Even though he doesn't change every heart through it, the offer of the gospel itself is a gift of, of, of love. And that gets to your point, Nick. I think it is calling people, come, come to Christ where you can experience the fullness of the love that I have for my son showered on you. So I think there's, there's ways that, that we can look at God not... God's actions toward non-believers, even in judgment, as having a as being tinged with love. There's an old, and I'm not sure if it's true. It's a legend. Uh, uh, Brutus, not not the Brutus who killed Caesar. Um, <laughs> the other but the Brutus. other Brutus. Other Brutus. <laughs> the other Brutus. He has, see how well classically educated. Frank's claws. That's right. Lucius Brutus, I think it is, and he, uh, you know, his sons took part in trying to restore the monarchy. Uh, after Roman became a republic, and uh, Lucius Brutus had to sit in judgment over his sons, and he said, "Okay, well, the law is the law," and he had he had them put to death. Did he not love them at that point? I think he loved them. Did he not have a duty to do? Yes, he did, and he he did his duty. So maybe one way of thinking about even God's love in the midst of judgment for the non-believer. Is not that he doesn't love them necessarily, but that but that for the or the governance of the universe and the right ordering of his creation, justice has to be done in some cases. Well, yeah, I think that gets exactly to the to the point that I was making about um, the the sort of catastrophic reality of sin. You know that we downplay. You know that we we don't. So I mean, Paul talks about in what is it Romans six um, about how the entire creation cries out for redemption, like the, the act of sin and rebellion against God by his own creatures, you know, warranted just and swift retributive just, uh, you know, uh, punishments. I mean, that's what it warranted. And that's exactly what Jesus took on our behalf. And so, you know, I think that, that the people that argue that God it can't be loving and punish, um, you know, evil at the same time, you know, don't appreciate just that we were saying Matt, that there's a there's a loving aspect to bringing the just um, in line. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a painful reality, but nevertheless, you know, for all of the people who, who are victims this side of heaven, you know, for all of the great injustice perpetrated, perpetrated among people by sinners, um, one of the great hopes is that God does in fact write the scales, you know, is bringing coming again to judge the living and the dead. And so that should be terrifying in the hands of a good preacher, you know, because that's exactly what John the Baptist was preaching until Jesus came and said, there's the Lamb of God, you know, takes away your sins, you know, you are unclean hands and unclean lips, like Isaiah says. And so I think, you know, 
it, it's it's a it's a question that we've talked about before, and I think that, like I said, defies easy. Uh, resolution and I think that's by design because it's the place where our sort of finite uh, contemplation of God has to kneel before his majesty and trust that he is in fact good uh, trustworthy and and love um, you know and this is Luther gets to this in the bondage of the will he says the height of faith is to look around you and see the world and send death and the devil raging and believe that God is still good, just, and, and true. And he's like, that's, but that's faith. That's, that's what new life in the kingdom looks like. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, um, you know, how could you have any of that reading the newspaper headlines or looking at so, so, so few people seemingly are going to heaven? You know, how could you believe that? Well, you know, I don't know other than the fact that I've been raised to new life by faith in Christ and it's no longer I who live, but he lives in me. And, you know, then you start just repeating Paul. I've had this conversation, you know, with, with countless people now throughout my life because it seems so, it's, it's such a counterintuitive, um, not counterintuitive, but, it, but it's a jarring, a jarring reality. I mean, I remember, I think we talked about it the last time when I first read Romans 9, 10, and 11, I was in college. <laughs> I'd only read up until like Romans 8, it turns out, uh, you know, or like read a lot of Romans 7 really resonated with that um but you know the first time i read it i became like an agnostic for six months i was like no wait a minute i was like nah -uh. i was like i don't want anything to do with this you know it's not fair you know like i because at that point i had chosen you know i had decided to follow jesus by that point so i was very much um, on the right team and uh knew what needed to be done and and finally got my act together like you needed to and really had no understanding of how it could have been good news until I realized that it's actually to let God be God in the areas that, that are most important, like this one, is a wonderfully freeing thing to be able to do and to concentrate on what he's actually called us to do, which is to go proclaim his word and his sheep will hear his voice. Yeah. There's a sense in which it seems like there's a difference between something or not something, the Lord is love. That's a statement of fact and feels loving in the way that we humans understand what loving feels like is a question of perspective, right? If you're, if you're just witnessing an interaction, you might be on the side of the lover or the lovee. And you might agree that, Oh, that that's love. Even though you didn't experience it as love, your example of the other Brutus is an example of that, right? Like to the sons, it probably didn't feel loving, but to some third-party observer, it might look like yeah. the truth, which is love. So the other biblical framework that I thought of in my conversation with this student was the difference between the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7 and the rich young man in Mark chapter 10, who both have these interactions with Jesus and ask him for something. And he basically tells both of them that they're not worthy to receive what he has to offer. He tells the rich young man that he's not following the law to enough of an extent. And he tells the Syrophoenician woman that by her very birth, she is not worthy of him. But their reactions to that statement are totally different. The rich young man leaves. He feels the interaction as unloving and he goes away. Whereas the Syrophoenician woman accepts Jesus's judgment of her, throws herself on the mercy of the court, and says, even the dogs receive the crumbs from the master's table, and Jesus then gives her what she's asked for. 
And it seems like you could say that Jesus is actually being loving in both of those situations by telling the truth, by being present to the conversation, but it's received in these two totally different ways. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a, there's also these hints, right? Hints. There's either these, there are these laments, I guess, throughout throughout Scripture when God is speaking to those who are throwing their their souls into hell. You know, Ezekiel eighteen. You know, why will you die? Why will you die, O Israel? Why won't you turn and live? I mean, so you can. This is kind of a sorrowful lament that he doesn't take, and he does it explicitly. I don't take any pleasure. <laughs> In the death of the wicked. This is not something I enjoy doing. So, the, I mean, the image of, of God, even in judgment, and standing over, over the fires of hell with a smile in his face and, you know, just having a kind of sickening delight in it is, that's not, that's not what that's right. scripture gives us. I mean, he does, do, he does delight in doing what's right and doing justice, and that is justice. But there's also a kind of lament for the fact that it has to be done, and that these people have hard, so hardened their hearts that there's uh, they they would rather they would choose the fires of hell rather than embrace than the embrace of his son. Yeah, and I think that's exactly where we need to um, avoid the temptation to sort of trifurcate uh, the the Trinity here, you know, or put um, <laughs> put uh, Jesus somehow pitted against you know Jesus is the God of mercy over against God the Father is the God of wrath, and so because what we see we see God in Christ directly dealing with how much the lengths to which he will go to have people avoid, um, you know, to, 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 to see his love in the face of sin. You know, I mean, that's what the cross is. And so I think, you know, that's where the proclamation to the world, you know, remains this, um, this, this very counterintuitive proclamation. This is love, not that you love God, but that he loved you and laid down his son as a propitiation for your sins. You know, this is how John, the famous chapter in love, um, is often pointed to, you know, God is love, as John says. Like, yes, we'll keep reading, you know, keep reading and talk about how he is loving because he had to be like our sin, so disfigured and and so marred uh, creation and the pinnacle of his creation, namely humans. Uh, so great was that disfiguration of marring that he had to he had to take it on himself. And that's that's the gospel. You know, so if you I mean we could argue I guess theoretically, you know, it could have been some other way, you know, than than it was. But again, you know, then we're just sort of playing um, playing gods ourselves at that point. You know, you write a write a book about that, you know. Uh, but but the facts of the ground are this is the the means by which God has um, chosen to save His people, and this is how He has loved to lay down His life as propitiation for sin. And, you know, I think that historically the debates, uh, this took place particularly around, around the Reformation about, um, about how you know, you know, who are the elect, who aren't, like, who is he loving, who isn't he loving, you know, those are, those are fascinating. And I've sort of signed, I've sort of landed the plane with the, in, in general with the Lutherans, uh, taking a page from Luther says, uh, the way I've just understood it is that we're not going to be sure this side of heaven exactly who are the sheep that are having their ears open, but we know the way that their ears are open, and that's to preach as boldly, loudly, and as frequently as we can the gospel. And, you know, there's some people who are clearly denying that um, and rejecting that. And so we have our ideas, you know, like, well, you know, barring some miracle, some uh, hospice chaplain at the last second of your life, you know, um, we got a pretty good odds here that we may not see you uh, in heaven. Um, but there are a lot of other people who have been in and out of church who, you know, are on prodigal journeys or not, or come back and forth that you say, well, 
Lord have mercy. And, you know, I did my part, Lord, um, you gave us something to say. Jesus said you would not lose any of those you have given him. And so I pray that this, um, thy will be done and, and trust that he's loving. You know, I mean, this is the whole point. Like the older I get, the more I keep reflecting on um, the Reformation and the importance of faith alone, you know, sola fide. It's like this amazing gift of faith because in all of these questions, it comes down to, do you trust God? Do, like, do you, do you believe in him? Do you believe like, in him? Yeah. I mean, I think I love the, I forget what the theologian said at first, but it's been repeated often and I agree with it. Um, that, you know, the prohibition in the garden, you know, why was there this prohibition? Uh, and, and in part it was because it wasn't a test necessarily, but in a loving right relationship with a parent, you trust them, you know, don't, drink this you know it, it's marked let, let me tell you what's good and evil don't yeah, try that's right that's exactly right and i think you know it makes sense to me that sin would be the exact reversal of that level of trust which is then makes sense as to why faith would be the restoration of that relationship which then says you know what like this doesn't seem like love to me you know like i have children and i baptize them and i pray that they are ones that you gave to your son and here's the means by which i can um you know you've given us to to sort of put them in the covenant and you've given us all of these 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 gifts but fundamentally i have to trust and you know and that's of course that begins the work of the church like you know you can't trust someone you don't know you know, how do you get to know him? You know, you get to learn about him. What did he say? Well, they wrote it down. You know, how do you know that? You know, this is the whole work. And so, you know, whenever I have someone come to me with a question like this, you know, or other big questions, you know, questions about human identity, questions about male-female relationships, questions about, you know, sexuality or marriage, you know, things that actually affect people's lives. I'm always trying to discern as best I can, you know, what their sort of uh, relationship to this great question of God is in the midst of that question. Because if they're coming at me with very little trust in God, well, then that's a different conversation than someone who is, who's wondering about the fate of their grandchild, who we just baptized, like whether or not they're a part of the elect or something like this, you know, that's a much different question, a much different discussion than how dare you believe in this monster God who says he's loving while executing his sons, you know, like Brutus, like I like in this book I just read the other day uh, about Rome. So the, the question of, of what hell is like also may play into this a little bit. Um, and Luke, I think it's Luke, Luke 16, where Jesus tells a parable of the rich man and Lazarus and um, the other Lazarus. <laughs> yeah, not not then. <laughs> we've we've got the other Brutus and the other Lazarus. Right, the other Lazarus. Um, yeah. Well, the the rich man, of course, goes to the place of torments, and he's not having a great time. He's really hating it. Um, but I'm reading a commentary by. Uh, can't remember who it was by. Lazarus was it Brutus uh, or Lazarus? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but the point was that that when. What, what, does, what does the rich man ask Abraham? He looks up and he sees Lazarus uh, in Abraham's bosom, and you, know, you might expect him to say, oh, please, let me come be with you. I hate it down here. I don't want to be here anymore. I want to be where, where God is, where you are. I want to be with, this, with the... But no, he didn't ask that. He wants, you know, he wants Lazarus to come down to him and give him, some, give him a, a drink of water. Um, and C.S. Lewis and others pick up on that idea, and they, they say, well, you know, it's... And well, people before him too. That really, what happens in hell is that the will is fully actualized. Like on on earth, the the person is in a play, in a position of hostility toward God, 
when that when the person dies, that hostility becomes to full fruit, comes to full fruit. And so hell is a, is, is, you're, is a place where you're tormented by your own shame, your own sin, your own disobedience, and yet you're also, you also so hate God, you so despise him that you would rather rot there for the rest of eternity than be, be in his presence anymore. And so God really says to the person, your will be done. You, you have it just as you've wanted it while you're on earth. I've, I've poured my blessings upon you. I've given you life. I've given you uh, the good, some tastes of the fruits of heaven on earth um, in, through love and family and all those kinds of things. And you've rejected all of it. And, and you've given me no uh, praise or glory. And you've even more rejected my son. So have your way. And they do. And they, <laughs> and, and they won't. They, they would not, if you dragged a burning soul out of, out of hell 10,000 years later, I forgot who said this, 10,000 years down the road and offered him a place in heaven, which won't happen, but let's say you could, uh, he would say, hell no, <laughs> send me back down there rather there than here. Heaven no, that's right. This, yeah. is the, this is one of the interesting things about the repeated biblical refrain about the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. We, we've really easily, I think think of gnashing of teeth as people responding to being in extreme pain. But apparently in the Hebrew, my Hebrew scholar friends have told me this, that it doesn't have anything to do with pain. It has to do with anger. These are angry people gnashing their teeth, not desperate to be out of the pain that they're in, but angry and still angry, just like you said, wanting their own way and still wanting it and angry about it. Well, and I think you can see um, echoes of that um, all around us, you know, uh, it's not a political statement, but you can just see the, um, you know, the various reactions to God proclaimed even lightly in the world. Like for instance, I'm thinking of this, I was teaching a class on the thou shalt not kill uh, on the 10 commandments. And I was talking about how the law, the voice of God provokes wrath, weeping and gnashing of teeth in the hearts of unbelievers and the hearts of the angry, you know, anti, um, anti God people. And you can see this like even in the little sisters of the poor, right? The little sisters of the poor, there's none uh, uh, orphanages and things. The Catholic nuns want to not have contraception as part of their offering and their, you know, part of their health uh, benefits or whatever. Well, that's whispered, you know, it's the little sisters of the poor. It's like the shunt, just that's just whispered. And they have had the full weight of, of every possible law uh, brought down on them. Um, it's come up against recently in the Supreme Court. And I use that as an example, um, like for instance, like when Brett Kavanaugh was being confirmed and there was a fear that he would be the, the swing vote that was gonna overturn Roe versus Wade, you know? And you had people literally throwing their bodies against the door, like adult, adult people um, running full speed you know, like bugs on a windshield, you know, against gnashing the door, teeth. gnashing the teeth. And so I use this example, again, I, I would want to talk to those people who want to preach to them, would want to have the Holy Spirit remove some of that anger, but that we see glimpses of how that type of, of wrath against the voice of God could just be um, fully embodied, I think is really an interesting uh, way of looking at it, Matt, because we see glimpses of that. You know, we see glimpses of, of um, says who, you know, what do you mean? Of course, I'm going to eat of this tree. You know, of course, I'm going to I'm going to do what I want with whatever I want because who the, who the heaven do you think you are? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like and so you know we're we're, we're in a, a a mission to what does Luther say that the, the you know the, the desire the glory will not be. 
be met, but it has to be the desire will have to be extinguished, you know, and like the glory the to be your own God, the quest, the quest. to be your own. Yeah. yeah. The quest for your own world, your own God that everyone does what you say and when and how um, can't be met, you know, and it's going to frustrate you to the point where yeah. if you don't get the judge you want, you're going to sacrifice your own body. You, until you're reborn, until you have a new, new creation in Christ. I mean, that's just how it works. <laughs> the quest for glory can never be satisfied, can only be extinguished. You know, I, I think something that I think, I mean, you know, I, you put up recently on Facebook, Matt, about how C.S. Lewis should not be read theologically as much as sort of devotionally. And I, I share that with you. I think, you know, he certainly isn't a, um, even at the level of, I think you could sort of understand him as like a modern church father almost, you know, read with, with the same non-canonical appreciation, at least from a Protestant perspective. You know, I think Augustine was fallible, although very wise and insightful. But that being said, one of his depictions of hell in the Screwtape Letters, I think is very, it's a really comprehensive vision of how one might consider people not wanting to be in heaven. You know, and he just flips all of the goods of God over. And, you know, all of the things that we consider to be his gifts are, you know, irritants and, and um, contemptible, you know, in hell. And, he, and then one of the great phrases, which I think um, really speaks to his insight into what the devil is, he says, you know, this ridiculous, pitiable enemy of ours actually loves these people, uh, whereas we know that the best thing to do is consume them. And I thought that was like just such a, I mean, a poignant picture of, of how we say God is love. Like he's love because he not only gave us these things, but allowed a reconciliation to our rebellion that then reorders and resets our relationship to him and to the world that begins to, to exhibit the fruit of the spirit, which actually produces um, the good that we were intended to from the beginning. And it's, um, you know, and then, and then of course people hear that and like the devils and, Screw tape letters. See, like that sounds like the silliest, ridiculous, most ridiculous, you know, fairy tale I've ever heard. I'll say, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, <laughs> you know, but uh, but please, uh, and I'm sorry that you're. Why are you throwing yourself up against my car? What what is happening right now? <laughs> like, what are you doing? I really think that Lewis is one of those guys who really does help with with Christian imagination, especially when it comes to heaven and hell. The Great Divorce is another. Yeah. Kind of, Another example, you know, these busloads of people from hell coming up to check out heaven. The grass is too sharp. The, the, the just, yeah, it was too bright. You know, everything was. Um, <laughs> I love the fact that the bishop, the bishop in that book, is so amazing. Yeah. Like, I, I, he's going to a Bible study in hell. <laughs> he's going to uh, because he's talking about the Christ event, you know, and it's always and it's always dawn you know so it's always gonna he's just around the corner you know the, the right. new day is just and i love that and also love, i mean you remember just to go on an, an aside but remember the critique of the bishop you know which i think is very fitting for um many of our uh, or many bishops in all churches today is that the, you know he protested that he had been so courageous and so outspoken and and um and the guy, you know, the, the, the guy from heaven was like, can you point out one place where you took a contrary stance to anything that the prevailing <laughs> culture was talking about? Oh, yeah, awesome. And I said that, like, C.S. Lewis knew, he knew that at least. He knew he was, he was insightful in that respect. But, but I think it all comes down, I mean, this is a, it's a real question, you know, dealing with the fact that God is love. And I talk to people about this all the time, that, that you know, it's, it, it, 
we go out into the world that's full of people, you know, has uh, pediatric oncology wars, you know, that has wars and earthquakes. We go out into this world proclaiming this seemingly ridiculous statement to many people that God is love, you know, and we, we point to how he is love, like John the Baptist, you know, the long bony finger, as Luther says, you know, and we point to that's how he loves and he loves, um, uh, in this, in the midst of, and despite our sin and the death and death and the devil, and he has sent us into the world to to proclaim this, and um, all who have ears, let them hear. And you know, it's no small thing. Like if you haven't gotten to this point um, in your theological considerations, well, you probably um, you probably need to, you know, because this is sort of, in my experience, personally and then professionally, is the the fulcrum. Like people have. If they haven't wrestled with how God is loving, then they haven't suffered in their own life to that point, really, as a Christian. Because then the whole scripture opens up in a much different way. And you see that the, the completion of Christ's suffering in the body um, and the witness to his love in the midst of that is exactly what the church had been called to in the first place. You know, I mean, the people who were be professing that God is love while they were being thrown to the lions, you know, professing that God is love while the plague was right going through through uh, Jerusalem, you know, Paul proclaiming God's love when he's getting beheaded. Like, this seems crazy. And yet this is what, for them, I trust it was no less true when they said it than when I said it. And I can't make you believe it, but I'll continue to repeat it and trust and pray that by the Holy Spirit, you will come um, to believe, you know, as Paul says, we, this is what we heard and came to believe. So we preached to you, you came to believe. So uh, that's what we've been called to do. And, but I certainly, I just want to be clear about it. Like it's, it's the fact that you can't have a satisfactory answer doesn't mean that it's not a, a worthy intellectual exercise. I think it's a very devotion. It's a very devotional exercise to, to pray and wrestle with God, like Jacob at the Jabbok and say, you know, how does this all play out? And hopefully that will lead you to uh, deeper prayers and more fervent um, devotion. Yeah, I think, I think people, often have this is a real problem for people not just because it's a real problem it is um but also because you'll come to it with it with uh, with assumptions about themselves that are they're wrong and so so the the classic basic assumption of the human person is i'm good and therefore i deserve good things and and everyone else is basically good not as good as me maybe but but they're okay too and so every so they, they should also have good things done to them and so when god doesn't do good things for us but instead brings things like tragedy disaster death plague uh sickness what's wrong and uh, what's wrong with him how how could a god of love treat lovable people in in the way that he's the, the way that he's done so yeah the that this is what makes liberal theology attractive to some people, right? Because, because then, you know, within the liberal framework, oh yeah, um, you are good. You're, you're really, you're very good. And you're not fallen. You're, you're, you're just, you're, you're, the mosaic is still unshattered and God loves you very much. And so, uh, bad things happen, you know, because of you know, systems or things in the world that are, that are off, but not because of the human heart being off. Um, and God came to say, God loved us so much that he sent his son to die in solidarity with us to show that he, you know, he empathizes with our suffering. Right. Um, and so, and so they're kind of, you don't really answer the question, but you do get a therapeutic out yes. where, where you don't have to really wrestle with the reality of your own evil. And there's the no justice there. Yeah. Yeah. Because love, love upholds justice. Love does not abrogate it. 
Right, right. Or you have the, what, I forget the, the rabbi's name, uh, uh, who wrote the book, Why the Bad Things Happen to Good yeah. People. But it, his point was, you know, obviously God's not powerful enough. You know, it's, yeah. it's <laughs> he really well, that's, where it, that's where it ends. I mean, that's where when you, I mean, this again, this is why I, I can't be, it can be more of a, of a poignant topic for me because it's literally where I kind of, where I was killed and made alive by faith because I had been reading, particularly in, in late college, right out of college, um, all of the, the sort of as deep a level of theology as I could handle at the time about theodicy, you know, the justification of God, you know, and I think, what is it, Alvin Plantinga has a, like a famous statement on it, but I mean, it's, it's a real question, you know, for centuries now, ever since, you know, well before Voltaire, but he kind of popularized, you know, the whole mocking of the God of love, you know, and Candide and things like this. But, you know, eventually you get to the point where you're like, okay, I guess, you know, like you read enough, you're like, sure, like, all right, uh, I guess I feel a little better now because I've read, you know, 1400 pages on how love is actually, um, you know, God can be seen as love even in the midst of the trench warfare in World War I, you know, okay, I guess. But then, you know, I ran into a guy much more Lutheran guys, in particular Oswald Bayer, with his book called um, Justification, you know, Living by Faith. And he sort of mocks these attempts. You know, he says, look, you know, if it were able, if God were able to be explained, then you'd be God. You know, there's a part of the, you, if you could figure him out, then, you know, not what's the point, but, but there's a reason you can't. You know, this is sort of the, the good Lutheran refrain. There's a reason why you're going to be unsettled um, when you try to be your own God. And that's because that's by design. You know, he will not be let you find him in your 1400 page book on the Odyssey. He's going to be found in his son by the power of the spirit through the means of grace. And that's where he's found. And so if you don't, if you're looking for God and his love outside of where he has situated the promise and the means, well then don't be surprised if you don't find it or what's more of the case is you find it cold and then you become like a liberal theologian or a pastor, and then you eventually start getting really fired up about what is actually loving, which is political involvement and social justice. And that's what we see. That's how it works. And so part of the reason that I keep liking to talk about these things, and it keeps driving me back to the Bible and, and continue to participate in church is precisely because I'm grateful that he has, he has given you know this gift of faith and realize that there are means by which we can continue to be equipped and nurtured. And the further, the, the, the deeper we go, or, or the, the more we are nurtured in the, uh, by the fellowship, the breaking of the bread and the teaching, the apostles teaching and fellowship, as he says in Acts, then the stronger we are to uphold this, this seemingly um, paradoxical and crazy thing to say to a world that is, that is um, full of sin, death, and the devil, that God is love, and we know him, you know, and this is um, something that we'll continue to preach. Yeah, one helpful thing is last, just in closing, one helpful thing I think is, especially in level of proclamation, is, is because we don't know who's elect and we don't know what God's gonna do with his word, we go out and we, we tell people, if they say, hey, does God love me? You say, God sent his son to the world because he, he wants to save sinners, and, and he would, he would uh, he, if, if, if he has to judge you at the end, it's going to be something that causes him lament. And, and so he would have you today turn to him and become his child. And Amen. so, uh, you know, we don't have to go into the question of, of the, yeah, this can um, be true for you today. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly.
Well, that's all the time we have this week. If you want to keep this conversation going, I hope you'll be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. We are, as always, thankful for your taking the time to be with us today. Thanks, as always, to Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh,